This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by The Great Courses. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds for a free month. Check it out. You'll love it. This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. And Squarespace, go to squarespace.com to make a beautiful website. I have it open in a Safari tab somewhere on my phone, too, for last-minute yes. references. Let's, let's, yeah. let's do that. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's uh, policy podcast on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, joined, joined in the studio, two special guests, uh, Ezra and, and Sarah, are, are off at the second Vox Conversations conference. Uh, so I've got my colleagues Dylan Matthews and Libby Nelson here with me. We are in the middle of a, a crazy week of American domestic politics and policy news as Donald Trump tries to round out the 96th and 97th days of his presidency. So we're going to ignore that in in solid weeds fashion and uh, delve into a topic that uh, no one is discussing and is going nowhere in Congress. We're going to look at a, a white paper about gender, monarchy, and, and war. But first, I want to talk about this uh, this election that, that played out in France uh, earlier this week, because, I don't know, politics, political dynamics uh, have been getting sort of more globalized, more internationalized lately. And we saw a real trend toward people looking at the Brexit vote in the UK and then Donald Trump's election in the United States and then saying, okay, uh, populist nationalists are, they're surging everywhere. And Marine Le Pen certainly seemed to want to play up affinities with with Donald Trump. And Donald Trump offered her a sort of a quasi-endorsement in the presidential campaign, which was a, a little odd. And, and she got in second place. France is a two-round electoral system. Uh, so she finished in second place and will be in the runoff. But she's going to be facing off against uh, Emmanuel Macron, who is like, he's like a, like a parody of a neoliberal globalist figure. Um, he literally, he he worked in the financial industry. He was recruited into Francois Hollande's uh, cabinet. He was a socialist president, but he was brought in as an independent centrist economy minister. Um, as economy minister, he pushed through a couple uh, neoliberal reforms, uh, most notably um, uh, made it easier for more French stores to be open on the weekend. Um, then he quit the cabinet to launch an independent centrist campaign in an election race in which there were a, a lot of sort of pro-Russian views issued by a lot of candidates. He was the one who said, uh, no, France needs to increase its defense spending, integrate more with NATO, uh, needs to stand for the European Union and the European idea. He was targeted by all the, you know, fake news kind of people, uh, somehow like Pepe Twitter bots were now attacking him and, and all kinds of stuff. So he um, he finished in first place and he's way ahead in the in the second round polls. And it it looks like, a you know, a, a triumph for the the unfashionable neoliberal globalism. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's also a good reminder of how dependent these things are on structure. Like, those were the top two finishers, but there were four candidates who all roughly got 20% of the vote. And like just behind Marine Le Pen was Francois Fillon, the former sort of conservative prime minister who was embroiled in this corruption scandal. And then right after him was uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the sort of far left uh, 
Insubmissive France, I believe is his, his movement's <laughs> name, uh, candidate. And they all got like roughly the same share of the votes. And in like a sort of Scandinavian style proportional representation system, they would have sort of roughly equivalent blocks in the parliament. But because of the wacko jungle primary system that, that France uses, sort of the two people who squeaked to the top get to move forward and and uh, just because of the nature of how we interpret elections, people draw a lot of meaning from that. I think it is hard to overstate. I mean, the 2016 election here was crazy and unprecedented in a lot of ways, but this was also a very weird election in France. I mean, you have neither of the two main political parties, the Socialists and the Republicains, um, made it to the final round. Like, I, I took a class on two elections ago, the 2007 election, the uh, Sarkozy one, I would have thought that would have been, like, somewhat useful uh, in interpreting this election. It was, in fact, completely useless because over 10 years, the political dynamics and the specific dynamics of this race and the weird scandals that erupted um, have changed had changed things so much that it's basically two people from parties that have, n- I don't think, ever held the presidency. No, definitely have never held the presidency uh, are, are, are basically looking to be in charge. And they have almost no support in, in parliament, right? Mm-hmm. So Macron has, like, invented a political party that's right. never run candidates before. Uh, the National Front has been along for a, a long time, and the uh, her father was presidential candidate, and sort of, oh, National Front is making a run at the presidency, has been a, a story in France for a long time. But they have— they have, what, I think two members of parliament? Yeah, one of whom is her niece. Right. I mean, it's a little bit strange, right? I mean, you imagine a third-party presidential candidate in the United States or somehow a race that became between two different third-party candidates, but then you knew, or it seemed unclear that they would have any actual congressional support, right? So it's it's not totally clear what this amounts to in, in concrete terms. Well, it's also interesting because... France tried really hard to prevent anything like this from happening. So sort of because it has a semi-presidential system where there's the... the let's explain that. Yeah. Let's explain <laughs> Let's explain French how French government, government works. All right. So it's sort of a melding of the U.S. system where you have a legislature and then the president and European systems where you just have a legislature and then the leader of the majority bloc in the legislature becomes prime minister and, and wields executive power. So France has both a president and a prime minister. Um, and... For a long time, it was possible because of sort of how legislative elections interacted with presidential elections for the head of government, the prime minister, to be a different party than the head of state, the president. So Francois Mitterrand, the the socialist president, had to deal with Jacques Chirac, a sort of conservative prime minister. Jacques Chirac, as president later, had to deal with Léonard Jospin, who was a a socialist prime minister. And this was sort of referred to as cohabitation and sort of analogous to what Americans call uh, divided government. Cohabitation is a way better name for it. It's definitely better. So way more confusing. It's way more confusing. It sounds, I mean... (laughs) It, it it feels like a vague dig at at French social mores, but uh, but unlike Americans, French people were very upset with this this setup that allowed nothing to get done, and so they changed the constitution in the '90s to shrink the the term of the president from seven years to five years to match up legislative elections with presidential elections. So now legislative elections take place every five years, along with the presidential elections, and right after the presidential elections. The idea being. You'll have the presidential election and then just people will vote for whatever party they voted for for president to give the president backing and allow them to sort of actually make policy. 
And that works if you have a roughly two-party system where either the the Gaullist conservative candidate or the socialist candidate uh, wins the presidency and then their party, which is is sort of well-organized and can run in a lot of uh, districts, can mobilize. But now you have two finalists, neither of whom have a party with that kind of capability, neither of whom are likely to get a majority. I think it was different when Sarkozy was president, but Hollande has a cabinet that is like a socialist-led cabinet, but it's itself a coalition. So it's become like another kind of a mashup of an American and a more traditionally European system, right? Because it's common in Germany or in Sweden or wherever that whoever is the prime minister will be leading a multi-party type coalition. Um, France has also come to be that way in terms of its prime ministership, but the presidency is necessarily indivisible, and it creates a, a certain amount of ambiguity as to, like, who is actually the chief figure in in the government, right? And that would be exacerbated if you have a situation where you probably have Macron as a president ideologically positioned in the center, probably with a relatively weak parliamentary party behind him. And so then he is appointing either a from the left, either a center-left or a center-right coalition cabinet of some kind. And then it's actually going to be that cabinet that gives sort of the flavor to what is the government actually about in terms of the policy outcomes. Right. And, and there's less power invested in the president to stop them from sort of passing stuff. That's like another subtle difference from the U.S. system that like the socialist prime minister in the late 90s adopted the 35-hour work week over the objections of Chirac and, and the conservative president. Um, and so, yeah, like I don't I don't know what policies will come out of that, but they might be rather different than what whatever Macron ran on. So I've been reading, I was I was reading this morning about the legislative elections and as far as I can tell from Le Monde, the basic assumption right now is nobody knows what's going to happen and we have to wait and see who wins the presidential election to have any idea what's going to happen, which is also, I am exhausted imagining having a legislative election immediately after the presidential election. I think I'm glad we don't do it that way. I cannot imagine a situation like this. I guess if Trump had been the third party candidate that occasionally he seemed to be trying to be, um, and if we had seen a lot of Trumpist, like, down-ballot candidates, that would be the only analogy. Well, but we would, didn't. And that that's kind of an interesting fact that has continued to— It would be as if Clinton's campaign had collapsed early and made it clear that Sanders was going to be the Democratic nominee. So Michael Bloomberg had hopped in. <laughs> and then the fact that Bloomberg was going to be in caused Mitt Romney to also get in— Something like that, right? I mean, yeah. I, I, I guess we should explain the, the backdrop of this, right? Yeah, but, perhaps people have not been following every twist <laughs> and turn of these weird scandals. This all, well, It all began because the incumbent president, Francois Hollande, a socialist, is eligible to run again. But he was hideously unpopular. So he decided to step aside and not run again. So then in the socialist primary... His prime minister, uh, Manuel Valls, was sort of, I guess, like you would call him the establishment 
candidate in there. Um, but he lost to uh, a left-wing guy, Benoit Hamon, who tried to sell himself as the French Bernie Sanders. Oh, which is a, a position that is up for grabs, as far as I can tell, in the American analogies to this race. Yes. Well, then later, the hardcore communist became the French Bernie Sanders. <laughs> I should say, I find these analogies all to be a little bit suspect because all of these candidates are running on programs in terms of the level of taxation and the generosity of the welfare state that are well to the left of Bernie Sanders' platform. Like Le Pen's platform is to his left. Right. Filon's platform was to his left. Like Macron is like this huge neoliberal sellout. And so like his big reactionary idea is that all companies should be forced to engage in collective bargaining with their workforces, <laughs> as opposed to right now in France, that happens at the industry sector level. So obviously, I, I get the sense in which, like, he, he's the centrist and Amon was on the left, but the context is completely different, right? For a French politician to stand for a government guarantee of health insurance and heavily subsidized college tuition would not in any way, like, mark you out. Like, that's that's what the fascist wants. That's what the communist wants. It's what the centrist wants. And, right. and it's, it's almost like France is a very different country and they're with having different a, political systems right. and social mores. I don't know. But 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 there's more like transnational interest in these things. So mm -hmm. it got sort of mapped onto itself. So anyway, this left wing guy won the socialist nomination. But Macron had also been a member of Hollande's cabinet. So over time, he started to seem more like the sort of de facto socialist candidate. More and more sort of bigwigs from the party were endorsing him. Um, then on the right, they had a primary between uh, Filon, who won, Alain Juppé, who... I former guess had been minister. way ahead in the polls. They were yeah. all former prime ministers, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it started out with this like very stacked list of Sarkozy ran again, like a former right. president ran again, right? Um, but so then Filon surprisingly won, and then was like hit by all kinds of scandals about his suits. Oh, not just his suits. Oh no, it's so much. I, I want to talk. Yeah, I want to talk about the scandal because it is so weird and so French. Um, a lot of it was about what is called emploi fictif, which basically means fictional jobs. Um, and it's essentially that he kept putting members of his family on his payroll, which is a thing that people sort of do in France. Like, this is not a weird scandal that he was the first one to ever have. It just was very bad. Um, and there were so many investigations that, as I recall, there was this, like, bizarre day when he was supposed to give a press conference about whether or not he was going to stay in. And just, like, more damning facts kept coming out. I think American politics has been so weird that I've been following French politics slightly less than I used to. And I feel that I have missed some really great things. Well, well and he, like, publicly said, like, if I'm under investigation right. for this, like, blatant corruption, <laughs> um, I will step out of the race. And then it was announced that he was under investigation. And then he did not that's, Yes, aside. that's what that was. He, he kept saying he was going to address it, and then he just stayed in. And almost, I mean, he came pretty close. He came, yeah, he came very close to, to beating Le Pen. Um, and, and also, it, had he stepped aside, I mean, this is part of what's interesting. We're talking about this total meltdown of everything, non-party candidates. But if he had actually stepped aside and Juppé had stepped in, the odds are, like, really good that his replacement candidate would have won the election. Well, and Fionn ran on this weird platform, so he's, like, very pro-Russia. He wants, like, austerity-like 
has not been proposed in the mainstream of French politics in a long time. He wants a big crackdown on immigration, not as big as, as Le Pen and the National Front want, but, but a substantial one. And so he was just like a little out of the mainstream for a conservative candidate. And so all the polls of him against Macron showed Macron beating him pretty handily, not as handily as against the sort of far-right candidate, but but pretty handily. And Juppé was like a center-rightist well within the French mainstream and like very easily could have beaten Macron. Right. So so he he had the ghost jobs and he was taking bribes. He was being hit by by these various scandals that kept almost forcing him out of the race, but in the end he he sort of soldiered on and I guess I guess Donald Trump has maybe taught people that they should just forge ahead. Uh Oh god, I didn't even think of that connection. Um yeah, I mean, I don't know. That, that shamelessness is also, like, not necessarily not a feature, an innate feature of French politics either. Well, yeah, but, like, Hollande, like, had an affair while in office and, like, had his, like, mistress move into the presidential palace at some point. Like, what is and isn't allowed in French politics is wildly unclear to me. <laughs> Learning is great. You know, if you listen to The Weeds, you probably like to learn, and there's never been a more important time to learn and to stay informed. Uh, That's why I'm a big fan of The Great Courses Plus, and I want you to sign up too. It's a great library of video lectures presented by award-winning experts on a ton of different topics. They got politics, world history, economics, but also like funner stuff, you know, how to cook, how to take better pictures. They have over 8,000 lectures. New ones are added all the time. You stream them on your schedule. You watch on your smartphone, your tablet, your laptop, your TV, wherever you want. Uh, Anything that has a screen on it, you know, they will deliver the Great Courses Plus too. So lately we've been checking out the surveillance state, big data, freedom, and you. Cybersecurity expert Paul Rosenzweig looks at the government's role in providing security from threats like digital espionage and hacking, also preserving our rights to, to, to privacy and freedom. It's a fascinating subject and, and one that, you know, I'm thinking about more and more. So sign up for The Great Courses Plus and as a listener of the weeds, you get a free month by using our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Get your free month. You're going to love it. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. I want to talk about some of the dynamics, though, that like that are more universal than these sort of particular like I I am stretching to imagine an analogy for the uh, emploi fictif in the United States. Like, I guess it's Ivanka Trump working in the White House. I don't know. But But the scandal there is that she has a real job. Yeah. Yeah. It's the exact opposite. It's (laughs) it's like an emploi actuel. Um, I mean, first of all, like Le Pen made it to the, the second round, which is not insignificant, even though it looks right. like at this moment that she is going to get completely plastered and run over in, in the final. Like that, given how long the Le Pen have been running for president in France, like that that's still pretty noteworthy. The other thing is this sort of continued rural-urban globalist, not globalist divide that we saw with Trump, we saw with Brexit. It's showing up again in France, where you have a candidate of the educated, the cosmopolitan, um, the people with French results don't really tear out by education level the way we do in the U.S., but the polls were sort of broken down by professional status. Um, And basically, Macron was the candidate of the educated professionals and the the semi, the slightly less educated, but still the nurses, teachers, civil servants, like that level of you need a college degree to to do this kind of work. Le Pen was the the candidate of, of people lower down on the socioeconomic ladder. There was this weird geographic divide where almost all of the west of France went for Macron, the east of France, which is more industrial or post-industrial, went for Le Pen. Even if there is not like a global network of nationalists, which is a really weird concept to think about, there there are these dynamics. In France, despite being very different, very different to the U.S. 
in a way that Britain, for example, is not. These dynamics still seem to be playing out there. Yeah, and I mean, to me, the common elements of the divide underscore the extent to which it's a mistake to look too hard at specific economic issues. There are ways in which Barack Obama's policies like fell short of delivering for working class people. And there are also ways in which Francois Hollande's policies did. And there are probably ways in which Angela Merkel, I I don't know as much about Germany. Uh, But you have the basic same like city, country divide, young, old divide in enough different places where enough different stuff is going on. And like, you can't say, well, if only France had a universal healthcare system, then people wouldn't be upset about globalization and immigration because uh, they do. Right? They are upset about the immigrants being in their universal right. healthcare system. Right. And so it's, right. to me, the, the transnational nature of the populist nationalist phenomenon argues for taking it at face value that you have a whole bunch of different countries that are experiencing substantial demographic change due to a slowdown of native birth rates, uh, rapid aging of the native-born population, influx of immigrants who are non-white, often non-Christian. And while I don't, like, participate in the backlash to those changes, it's a real change. It is a big deal. There is probably a reason why it was not always like this. And it is, to some extent, like more reasonable than people give it credit for that there would be a big backlash. Like when big change happens, it would be weird for it to be totally uncontroversial for like France to become a country that has a large persistent Muslim minority in which people of Arab descent are serving in the cabinet and being promoted for spots in the civil service and and so on and so forth. Like that's really different from how it was in the past. And the backlash to that is about what it's about, uh, just as it is in, in the United States and the UK. So it I think that's basically true. I think there is something in France that complicates it a little bit, which is there was not this dynamic that you saw with Brexit and that you saw with Trump, where the old people who remember the way things used to be were the people lining up behind this. Old people voted for Fion. Right. I was actually shocked when I was I was helping Zach Beecham with some charts and going through some polling data. I, I was shocked by how low Le Pen's numbers were among the retired. That that just is not what I was led to expect by what these dynamics have been in other countries. So that's not to say you can't be enthrall to a real or mythical past if you were younger, but it does a little bit complicate this narrative of, you know, this was not the way it was when we were younger and we want it to go back to being like but that. But Philom was also running as an anti-immigrant That's, yeah. nationalist candidate, right? I mean, older French people will have a more direct personal connection to, like, Vichy and World War II and perhaps wisely shy away from voting for, like, crypto-fascist parties. But like the French conservatives adopted the like anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim campaign concept, it seems to me. Yeah. I know we were getting to a a white paper sort of later in the show, but sort of one paper that's really framed my thinking about this kind of stuff is there's a good paper by this guy, uh, Branko Milanovic, who does a lot of stuff on global inequality and and sort of disparities between individuals at a global scale. Uh, And he had a paper called uh, From Proletarians to Migrants. It was making the point that, like, in the 1840s and through 60s when Marx was writing, it really was true that across industrialized nations, 
there was this class of proletarians who were roughly in the same state of things. And so it was sort of a transnational organization of them against the, the ruling class made some sense. Whereas now, like, the main economic divide in the world is between sort of people in poor countries who desperately want to get into rich countries, given the massive economic benefits that migration offers them, and the people in those rich countries, regardless of whether they're rich or poor. When you start thinking of it in those terms, it sort of makes sense that you'd see this pattern across the rich world, since it's sort of an argument within a class. It's an argument within the, the economic elite from a global perspective about how to deal with this inequality and whether whether to sort of accommodate it. This is sort of analogous to how Bismarck and some other capitalists tried to ameliorate socialist tendencies by sort of offering welfare programs. And the modern equivalent would be someone like Macron arguing for openness toward immigration and, and openness toward migrants versus people looking to protect the class position and forestall this, this kind of uprising. Right. I mean, what complicates it is that I, I feel like there's like... I think a lot of people like want to have the take that like this is the new axis of politics around the world uh, is like on nationalism versus globalism rather than on like traditional redistributive topics. And it's almost conceivable that depending on how you read her platform that like Marine Le Pen would give us that politics. But like in the United States or even in, in England, the parties continue to have really big gap on like super banal like what should the tax rate be kind sure. of kind of politics that that you know confound what seem to be the emotional drivers of of voter behavior these days i don't know i mean it'll be interesting to see if if in america the parties ever like align more with where their voters sort of hearts seem to be uh, but you see almost like the opposite of that there's a degree to that, but I think sort of you, you're seeing some movements toward that alignment. Like, I thought it was super significant that that Trump ran on no cuts to Social Security and Medicare. Like, in many other ways, he's just adopted sort of free market uh, conservative dogma, hook, line, and sinker. But he really did move the dial on that. And I think you've written a lot about this, Matt, and how significant that was in, in his support. I think it's also significant in how you see the left changing, that like the pro-European, pro-migrant left candidate was Benoit Hamon. He wanted a basic income and also to welcome migrants. And he failed completely miserably. Like he got like 6% of the vote. And Mélenchon, who's like a nationalist, like he hates the EU, he's, he's sympathetic to Russia, um, he doesn't talk about immigration at all. He mostly just wants to defend the welfare state and expand it. Like, that was the guy who got the votes. And similarly, in, in the UK, like, much to the chagrin of old Blair types, Jeremy Corbyn, like, just does not believe in the European project. He's not been fighting Brexit, basically, at all. Um, and, and like, it's not the dominant force on the left, and it's it's certainly not the dominant force on the American left. It's still the case that sort of proponents of migration and proponents of redistribution have formed a somewhat durable political coalition in the United States. But there are sort of fractures in that along the edges. Yeah, I think in the one thing in the U.S. that's a little bit different is the close identification of the left and with, with anti-racism. And that, I think, is tangled up in the migration question in a way that, for example, in France, where it is literally where the government cannot ask you about your race, um, those same dynamics don't quite play out. They still, you know, you can tinker around at the edges with it in other ways. There certainly are these dynamics there. 
But I wonder if that's sort of one of the reasons that we have not seen that dynamic emerge here quite so much. Like, you cannot try to be the candidate of the the coming non-white majority in America and, like, at the same time be like, and also we want, you know, we want to keep all the immigrants out. I mean, you you can yeah. be, but that's a, that's a really, really difficult tightrope to walk. And I, I just, I can't imagine how that would work. No, I think that makes sense. We'll let that be, be, be the last word and, and pivot. I really wanted to talk about this good classic weeds thing, policy idea, big thinking, not on the news. Uh, Dylan Matthews of Vox.com was on the Twitter machine uh, last week, I think it was. Um, and he was talking about national service. Yeah, so um, normally when I'm wrong on the internet, Matt doesn't ask me to m- explain myself to the, <laughs> the, the listenership of a, of a vast podcast. But, but well, no, we, no one, we can try that, though. We can <laughs> try that every week. Nobody's wrong on the internet. Let's, what, 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 Many what, people are wrong on the internet. What, what, I think what, I was probably wrong what, on the internet. But what, what, what is, what is national up. service? I'll Let's talk about this. National service. So if you, if you live in Washington, D.C., or like work in the policy sphere, you'll notice that usually men, usually in their 40s or 50s, become very enthusiastic about the idea of of setting up a program where people do a year or two of compulsory national service, either in the military or for sort of AmeriCorps to, to sort of working in schools, maybe some kind of service to the government for a few years. This is not sort of an unheard of thing uh, in developed countries. Uh, most European countries did this until relatively recently. I think only like six years ago, Germany got rid of their their conscription. Uh, South Korea does this. Um, Singapore does this. Uh, it's it's a pretty common feature of a lot of, of, of states. And I think there are a lot of attractions to this. I think sort of civic-minded folks like the idea of inculcating a sort of sense of, of duty and country in young citizens. Uh, I think there's a nostalgia for sort of the, the leveling effect of the draft and of sort of widespread military service among men in the 40s and 50s. Uh, I think among anti-war types, there's a specific interest in military conscription as a way to build opposition to large-scale sort of deployment of ground troops. I think that argument has become less potent now that we just do all our wars with drones. But it's a widespread idea. Uh, and so Ted Kennedy was a big fan of expanding national service. Obama and McCain both had sort of national service planks in their 08 platform. David Brooks, I think, talks a lot about this as a part of a sort of... Yeah, when, when you were starting, I was like, you just mean David Brooks. Just say David Brooks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't mean to subtweet David Brooks. Uh, anyway, I have, like, historically thought that this was a really bad idea for a few reasons. There's sort of the, the libertarian, like, you shouldn't force people to do labor unless you have a pretty good reason for it. But my main objection was, like, I think nationalism is an incredibly pernicious force in the world. I, I don't know for a fact that these programs sort of helped build a, a, a sense of Frenchness or Germanness that's, like, driving support for the National Front among the young. That would not shock me. And, and like, I'm really nervous about any national program that builds that kind of sense of identification with the nation toward potentially nefarious ends. But I was at this conference uh, in San Francisco about sort of how to design a universal basic income. And this is a topic I've written about a lot. I was on the weeds of, uh, a little while ago to talk to you about it, Matt. Um, and I think the hardest thing when you're thinking about any program to increase the amount of money that the government gives to poor people, you have to sort of run up against this deservingness objection that people really don't like their tax dollars going to people who they feel like don't deserve it. 
And like, this is something that goes back to sort of the British poor laws, like even in Henry VIII's reign, they made distinctions between the deserving and undeserving poor, like almsmen who would hand out sort of church charity made these kinds of distinctions. And it's not just an American thing either. Like even in countries with much more generous welfare states, they're guaranteed income schemes, make sure that you work or have some kind of work requirement. And that's a really big problem if you're proposing a policy where just everyone gets money, no strings attached, no work requirements, no nothing. And so one idea that sort of came up in this conference, and it, it was Chatham House rules, so I can't sort of say who, who, who brought it up, but was to sort of tie this to national service. And so instead of, of having a compulsory system where, like, by law, you have to serve the state for a year or two or else you go to jail— you would say to people, you don't have to do this. You don't have to to do your national service stint. But if you do, you're entitled to a basic income payment for the rest of your life and to, to economic security. And so the idea was that this would solve the deservingness objection, that people would not object to to giving a pension to people who've served their country the way that they object to to a traditional UBI system. And that was attractive to me. Like that, like it's not my ideal world policy. I'd rather just give people money. But I thought it was an interesting idea that sort of tries to address this very real political problem with with trying to expand redistribution. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's, it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors. Flavors are sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. they got great apples. they got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzel-y things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. It's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. So you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com slash weeds. I always feel like the inference that people are making there is like a little bit backwards that that I remember you know when when I was in in college I read uh that Scotchwell's book protecting soldiers and mothers about the origins of the American welfare state and she's making the this exact point about the deserving and, and undeserving poor and that you know early classes of American social welfare are like civil war veterans should get pensions. And then the the Republican Party um, starts sort of expanding that. It goes from pensions for disabled soldiers to pensions for all former soldiers and pensions for former soldiers and their widows and so on and so forth. And it's a sort of a proto-welfare state there built around service in the Union Army and uh, partisan politics in, in the Gilded Age. And then you have the idea of basic income for widows, essentially, widows with children, right? That particularly in a pre-1960s mentality, if you were a woman who, particularly a white woman who got married, had some children, you had 
done the right thing in life. And so if your husband died and was now not able to support you, having the taxpayers support you was like a perfectly reasonable policy option because it wasn't your fault that you were there sort of penniless. And there was no reason for society to impose on you the need to leave your children and go out and earn a living because that mothers were not expected to do that in general. So if the state had to step in for your dead husband, that was fine. But if you were like some tramp who was just having babies, you know, that wasn't fine at all, right? And then we had a a move toward a sort of more rationalist system in which welfare payments are just based on objective need rather than on how you came to have the children. And the politics of that get much, much more fraught. So uh, something Scotchpole argues is that when you had like World War II, right, there was near universal participation in the war, right? Not every single person served in the military, but basically every family had either someone working in the military or working in wartime military production. And even when you didn't, it was such a comprehensive total war with with the war bonds and the, you know, don't eat meat on Tuesdays, whatever it is, right? It's like Americans as a whole were waging this war. And so then in the post-war 10, 15, 20 years, you have a spirit of like, Self-congratulation, right? Like, like we deserve it. And and you have this even more explicitly in, in the UK. Yeah, like, I, yeah I was right, just bringing that up. Uh, right, the Labour Party campaigns in 1945 on a platform, we need to build a home fit for heroes, right? Because it's like all of Britain fought the war so we can all have a universal welfare state. And I guess the, the question of like this idea Dylan was floating is, Without the actual war, can you gin it up? Because to me, one of the striking things is that the home fit for heroes did not actually strictly test your eligibility for the NHS based on whether or not you had sacrificed in the war. It was like there had been so much sacrifice and the sacrifice was so close to universal that the electorate was like, yeah, we're going to just say we have a solidaristic national mindset now, right? Whereas the idea of this sort of like compliance culture where it's like, yeah, you'll do the service and then you'll deserve it. It seems almost like too obvious of a of a fake to me. Because um, like we could say like, oh, well, you know, like you served sophomore year in high school. It's like, <laughs> good for you. But like we don't because right. we know like we didn't just fight a war against Germany. Right. I mean, I don't know that you can grow World War II, particularly World War II in, in the UK. Um, and I also have, I've just been reading a lot about this and about until like starting like about halfway through their war, there was this sense that the class structure, the way Britain was set up was like not sustainable, that they would have to do something for the poor, for, for the working people who had suffered, especially in London more than anybody else. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that you can like analogize the London Blitz in such a way that like – builds that kind of support. And I wonder how this would end up being refra- like refracted through other stratifications. I mean, the high school analogy is interesting. We have a pretty high, not universal, but pretty high high school graduation rate, but nobody uses that as an indication of deservingness or that you've or that you've done it right. If anything, if you go to college and don't finish, it's like, oh well you did something wrong there. You know, it's like we're almost we're always looking for excuses to find someone not deserving. And I thought the funniest mini thing here, right, was um, Rahm Emanuel had this idea in Chicago mm-hmm. that, I mean, this is not a national service idea, but it would, 
his idea was right. So everyone before they graduated from high school had to like have some like pledge to go to college or have a job or or something. But then there was going to be like an exception for like rich kids who wanted to take a gap year and visit Florence or something. (laughs) And to not just make fun of Rom, you can see where he got that idea because it's like the point Mm -hmm. was to do something to put structure in the lives of at-risk youth, not to hassle rich kids and their parents who are not the subject of social concern, right? Mm -hmm. But it also makes you think about like, what would a national service scheme look like in practical, practical reality, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you could see a sort of a make-work jobs program for poor kids gaining a certain level of traction, maybe. But, like, would you really take, like, bougie, upper-middle-class kids and make them do marine basic training or, I don't know, pave roads somewhere. Part of what happens in a war is like, it is an actual honest to God emergency. Right. right? So it's like, yes, we are going to inconvenience people and make them go fight in this war because it's really important that we win the war. But if it's just like, well, we, we kind of want everyone to like have a nice time. Then it, it seems, it seems challenging to me to like actually get the oomph. It's like you would need the spirit of solidarity that you're trying to create. You would need somewhat universal buy-in, which I think is one reason to be skeptical of sort of the monetary incentive, which might not mean that much to, to certain rich kids. I think there are a lot of ancillary benefits that people want to identify in, in a national service program. So like desegregating the military plus the draft in the 40s and 50s, I think, did a, a real service toward building support for, for racial equality. And you could imagine now in a world where there's vast residential segregation and most people go to high schools with people of their own race, this having a similar effect. You could imagine it sort of putting people in contact with immigrants and reducing sort of xenophobic uh, attitudes for them. You could imagine it being a way for kids in sort of depressed communities to take a job in a city this higher productivity and sort of get out of that. Um, But a lot of these purposes are things that, like, in principle, K-12 through education could do. Like, it would be sort of trying to make up for the fact that we, like, don't have a proper busing system and, like, let white suburbs, like, segregate their children and, and demand that they not be schooled around Black and Latino kids. And, like, we should fix that. Um, and this is sort of a, a sort of after-the-fact attempt to to plug that hole. Yeah, I, I think I have some perspective on this from covering education that I've been sort of thinking about as we've been talking about this, which I hate to be the cliche person who's like, I think the devil of this would be in the details. But, yeah. like, I think there are a lot of people across the political spectrum who can broadly get behind the idea of requiring someone to serve their country is a good thing. There are vastly different ideas of what that means and what is valuable service and what is make work. And not only are they different ideas, they're probably almost diametrically opposite um, in terms of of what is good and useful. And I I agree. I think a benefit here would be social mixing, would be getting people from different geographic regions, different backgrounds to like meet and – find things in common or have horrible fights that would ruin the program within like six months, like who's to say. But I 
you know, I mean, I, I'm like imagining describing this and I am seeing the like analogy on Breitbart to communist China in the 1960s where they sent the intellectuals to the countryside, like literally as I am thinking this out. I feel like Breitbart would probably support sending intellectuals to the yeah, countryside. Yeah, maybe that's their wrong. Yeah. Maybe, maybe Breitbart was their wrong. But you know what I mean? They're, like They're, they're neo-neurotniks. Um. No, but I mean, to, to me, it just seems like a very direct analogy to how we don't manage public schools in right. the United States, right? That like, it would be logistically a little bit of a hassle to create racially integrated public high schools in the District of Columbia rather than uh, neighborhood-based public high schools in the District of Columbia. Like, people would not be going to the high school that was the closest to their house. But but also, pe- this is the, a tiny city. But No, but I mean, but also, like, people object to school busing programs, not primarily for the commuting inconvenience, right? Right. But because they actually oppose the idea of forcible socioeconomic integration in their child's life. So a national service program would be like a legitimate logistical burden on people's lives Mm -hmm. for the purpose of accomplishing this thing that we object to accomplishing on a much sort of simpler level, all of which suggests to me that just if you are someone who like wants people to have to go through more mandatory integration, it would make more sense to keep pushing on the somewhat hopeless door of school integration because the logistics of doing that are pretty solid. Like if people really wanted to have racially mixed public high schools, like I think we know how to make that happen. Um, the challenge would be convincing them that they do want that. But you would need to do both things in national service, right? Like, first, you would need to convince people that they actually want to do it. And then you would have to devise some whole notion of, like, how does it work? What do they do? Blah, blah, blah. Whereas we already know what 16-year-olds do all day. Like, they go to high school. And we know how to transport people from their homes to high schools. It's not, like, it's just a political problem. And we have municipalities that, like... Hartford, this might have changed since I last read about it, but I believe Hartford has like a pretty good busing program that is pretty successful at desegregating. And yeah, like if Montgomery County and and Maryland agreed tomorrow to take some D.C. kids into their their public schools, you could get a lot of this stuff done. But they don't because they like don't want poor black kids from the. But is there is there like good evidence on school integration type policy. Like, does this actually work? So a lot of the research on integration, it's difficult because a lot of the research on integration was done at a time when schools were actually being integrated, which was the 70s and 80s. Scores for Black kids in integrated schools went up faster than in segregated schools. I believe scores for white kids went up as well, but I am not 100% mm-hmm. certain on that. Um, I know they didn't get worse. Right. And so this has been bandied around a lot in the past few years, which it's interesting how Converse, like conversations and all kinds of other subjects feel like they were changed by the election in a way that all this all feels a long time ago. But it was like six months ago that really the big topic uh, in sort of liberal talking about education circles was like integration a good thing or the only good thing that we need to pursue. I have not read all of that research myself, and my sense is there may have been some other confounding factors in this in that time, just because. You weren't just integrating schools. You were taking kids out of schools that had been, like, bad and underfunded and were, were in many cases, putting them into better schools that I suspect had, had an effect there. But generally, I mean, the research the research on integration is pretty good in terms of it being a good thing. And then it was just almost completely abandoned in favor of, you know, 
no child left behind accountability type policies. It's the winds just shifted so utterly as as this era changed that it's it all it also feels like a cop out to be like, but that was a really long time ago, and who knows what would happen today right. because it was like it was a deliberate policy choice for that to be a really long time ago. But it was, but but the evidence at the time seemed to indicate that it was working. Yes, yes, and it was. There's pretty the solid evidence, evidence that now, it was working. There was a really good. Um, there's a really good feature in uh, This American Life, and I believe the Times Magazine also by Nicole Hannah-Jones yes. going through some of the evidence about this um, and and that it still does close the achievement gap. And we don't know a lot of ways to do that fully. Like there are some really effective charters that have some really effective methods, but the results seem pretty good. And I think that actually undersells it, that mm-hmm. I think in education circles, there's a tendency to focus on some sort of standardized metric of, of learning outcomes of what sort of share of a standard deviation of improvement in test scores uh, you get from something. And that's super important. Like, I, I don't think that's meaningless. But I think a lot of the benefit from desegregation isn't educational, it's civic. Mm-hmm. Like, one thing I've, I've, like, thought a lot about since the Trump win is that we need to think seriously about how to build a political economy that, like, produces citizens who are less susceptible to racist demagoguery. And that's really, really hard. And I think uh, Zach Beecham has written some stuff about how Canada does this. And a lot of it is just like really aggressive teaching of multicultural values in the schools. And I think a really effective way to do that in the American context is through desegregation. And that won't show up on on like some standardized test results. It won't show up in anything that's easily quantifiable. But it's really, really important. Yeah, I should should say that like... I believe that desegregation yes. is good and worth doing regardless of whether or not it works. Um, and that these these sort of evidentiary conversations in some cases miss the point, which is sort of what the argument has been around this in the education community for about the past six months. The other thing that's, that's interesting is that because everything ends up being a debate about charter schools, in some way charter schools have gotten looped into this because charter schools, because of the populations they target, tend to be purposefully hypersegregated. And so this has, in some ways, it has become, I think, a very not not a false choice because like these are a choice between two different approaches but like the debate has somehow been set up as like integrated quote unquote neighborhood schools that are no longer really neighborhood schools because of residential segregation versus like hyper segregated charter schools and are charter schools bad because they are segregated which is like a good way of separating out the things people like to argue about most in education but is not really about the sort of holistic issue here right although i mean to to me i mean I, I do think these issues deserve to be linked together. The The issue that people are, I think, missing is that in an urban context, right, the neighborhood schools are a market-based school choice program in which yes. access to schools is auctioned through the real estate market, right? So, like, charter schools are very segregated because they are based on a choice and sorting model – and neighborhood public schools are also based on a choice and sorting model with just a price mechanism rather than a marketing mechanism, right? And if you wanted to create integrated schools, you would have to substantially reduce the amount of choice that people have. I mean, you could have some of both, but like you would have to be saying these schools by design are going to be racially integrated. Um, in, in Singapore, they have uh, some of the world's most racially integrated housing. And the reason they do that is they make the apartment blocks be 
mixed, right? So like uh, a black cannot be too much Chinese in, in, by law in their system. Um, we are not going to do that. We could do that with schools, though. It's not a totally unreasonable idea, but it would require pushing back against both the chartery version of choice and the neighborhoody version of choice in favor of a, you know, real, very centralized system in which we're saying, look, you have to do this in order to maintain like a larger social goal that we think overrides like your mom's idea about where she wants you to go to school. And that's, you know, not, I don't know, it's it's not really the American way. Um People are, you know, argue about charter schools because they're arguing about unions. Uh, but in in big cities, like they, it's two sides of the same coin in terms of people getting to pick their school. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website, and make it beautiful with Squarespace. Uh, Squarespace is a service that they host a website for you, they they create a domain for you, and they let you design a website out of a a series of award-winning templates that they look great, they look really professional, they'll make you look good, and they're incredibly easy to use. Uh, I have been working on the internet uh, for a million years. Uh, When I started out, I, I was making my own blog websites, I was putting and funny stuff in brackets and, you know, reading HTML books and asking my roommate who was a computer science major. And it's just, it's too hard for most people, uh, particularly to make anything that looks good at all. Uh, But these days, everybody, you know, needs to be on the web. Uh, If if you're a business, uh, if you're a designer, if you're a a photographer, if you're a writer running a restaurant, if you have any kind of project going, you're going to want to be on the web. And you're also not going to want to spend a lot of money go through a lot of hassle or put in a ton of work. And Squarespace is the way to do it. Um, it, It's drag and drop. What you see is what you get. Incredibly simple. And they provide award-winning 24-7 customer support. So you don't need to worry about any of the technical aspects of it. Check it out at squarespace.com. You're going to see it's it's really easy. It's really affordable. And I think you're going to be really happy with it. Make your next move with Squarespace. Right. And there are other things. I mean, like, I think it's perfectly reasonable to support desegregation and still say that, like, we've learned really interesting and important things about pedagogy and how to structure a school so that kids more effectively learn from randomized charter experiments. So, like, I think we we have a lot more evidence on the importance of long school days and and sort of teachers who in certain sort of models of, of teaching that the KIPP schools and other, other places have tried out that are probably applicable even in, in a, a desegregated model. I'd be interested in that if they were. I'd be interested especially in an economically integrated model um, because one of, we've got really far afield here, but one of the interesting <laughs> things about charters is that like suburban charters have like kind of mere results. Um, and yeah. Charters in places where the schools are already as as generally perceived quote unquote pretty good do. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like, I don't know if it's because, I think in part it's because that model, people have not tried to take that model to places where the schools are like, uh, otherwise pretty good. The charter sort of try to appeal on different grounds than like we're going to be in school all day long and we're really going to raise these kids' test scores and all of that. Um, I always I wonder if I, should, if I should send Jose to the, there's a KIPP school near my house and I mm-hmm. wonder if yeah. I should send him there for the sake of the takes. 
I could do. You should send him to the the Chinese bilingual school so you can survive in our Mandarin dominated future. I think that is the hardest charter school to go. No, that's to that's what yeah. all the bougie people in DC want to do. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh yeah, he'll be some bilingual. You know, he can be viceroy of northeastern United States uh, in the <laughs> Chinese conquest. But I'm more interested in the in the short term takes and like, <laughs> I I sent my rich toddler to a no excuses charter school. Let's let's see what happens to him. I don't think anybody's interested in takes on language immersion schools, but I would be very interested in like long-term outcomes. As someone who like believes deeply in language immersion and has taught it, I also do not fully believe that going to a Chinese immersion charter school is going to make you fluent in Mandarin when you're an adult. But uh, that is, that we are now way off it, topic. It depends on what our Chinese overlords want. <laughs> Surely. Um, speaking of overlords. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> well, what if our overlords were over ladies? Oh my God. Um, <laughs> I think I have to leave this room. <laughs> No, explain what this paper explain, is. Yeah, at. I guess I found this paper, so I have to talk about it. You do. All right. Um, it's wild. This is wild research. So the title of this NVR paper is just Queens. Um, it is a, a recent working paper examining basically this sort of, to me, annoying gendered myth that if women were in charge, we wouldn't have war is really the, the, the underlying thing here. One fun thing about this paper is I am 99% sure it was conceived in a world where it was going to be released in a Hillary Clinton presidency <laughs> and would have felt... Uh, Slightly more relevant and actually less, like, charming and offbeat than it does to me right now. <laughs> um, I think about this a lot when I see, like, research and things that have been in the process for a while. It's like, oh, you didn't realize what? Okay, well, sure. all right. This is still really interesting. Um, so essentially what they did was looked at whether or not over five centuries countries had queens, whether they had kings or unmarried queens, um, and how likely they were to engage in conflict. And what they found was, in fact, that queens were more likely to go to war than kings were, which is kind of the opposite of, of what the conventional wisdom here is. But there are a lot of interesting wrinkles here about marriage, about siblings, uh, whether or not this is, like, applicable to modern society. It, it is just a really fascinating paper. So so single queens get into more wars than married ones, right? Yes. Well, but, but And part of it is because they get attacked more. Right. My understanding of the paper is that single queens get attacked more, the authors sort of hypothesized because they're perceived as weak uh, and the the married queens, because they've made an alliance and have more military resources, attack people more. Along with, yes, along with their husbands, the kings or their other allies, kind of both. Right. So it's a both interesting research. So the, the, bringing the, the marital point in is, mm-hmm. is actually really important because it underscores the extent to which this research, though funny, does not seem applicable to modern day democratic politics, right? Because it, it, the the fact that the single queens get invaded more often, whereas the married ones have powerful military alliances and attack other people, is showing that the sort of queen war dynamic is very tied not just to the personality of the monarch, mm-hmm. but to actually the like structural political conditions of monarchy as a as a system of government, right? Mm-hmm. And that it it actually it reshapes the objective international relations dynamic in a sort of unusual kind of way. Um, I think modern day politicians normally do not 
have these kind of international marriage alliances. Um, the prime minister of, of Denmark a few years ago was married to a British member of parliament, which I always thought was a little bit of a strange situation. <laughs> and I don't really know how their work family balance. Yeah, and Simon Kinnock, who's a plausible future leader of the Labour Party. I mean, but thankfully, England and Denmark did not go to war either together or apart. So... Well, he was out of power in England, right? I mean, right. You national could loyalties were not tested. Well, no, or if Denmark had tried to invade to put him, put him in office, right? Would sure. Been. And anyway, that's an unusual type of type <laughs> of situation in the modern day, and I still don't a hundred percent understand how it how it came about. Um, but I mean, I, I guess this raises the point: like, do people seriously think that if women were in charge, we wouldn't have wars? Yes. I feel this is a, a, this is a, I think this is partly a thing that men say when they think they're being complimentary and it is in fact really irritating. There were several examples of this during the campaign and if I had access to my angry tweets from like, not just that, but like this idea that women like by nature create a more caring, compassionate, less warlike society um, is still like pretty prominent and out there and people think it's a, it is benevolent sexism applied to sort of the uh, like d- roles of power. Like pe- people think this is a, a complimentary thing to say, uh, but it is definitely a stereotype that exists. Right. Hillary Clinton herself has actually, I think, done a great deal despite not becoming president to sort of combat this notion. By <laughs> and, and being well, a woman I mean, who everyone, would be president, like Indira Gandhi. I don't right. think is anyone's idea of a pacifist. Right. Uh, like Thatcher. Um, well, and some of that, like, I mean, there is this argument in some literature that that modern women leaders feel an urge to sort of out hawk the men because they mm-hmm. sort of need to bolster their credentials as serious on national security, which is something where we have a lot of gendered assumptions. And that always seemed more credible than the sort of lazy psych ladies be peacemaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, this is one reason why, why the Queens is interesting, right, though, because like one argument would be, OK, if you randomly assigned some woman to be president, would she be less hawkish than a randomly assigned man? And I think maybe. I mean, I think if you look at public opinion and things like that, that like women on average in the United States are less inclined toward harsh criminal justice punishments or, Mm -hmm. you know, they're like more left wing in general, as we know from voting. But then another question is like in the actual dynamics of politics, I feel like particularly inside the Democratic Party, it's probably not a coincidence that as Hillary Clinton sort of worked her way up the funnel toward trying to become president, that she positioned herself as more hawkish than most Democrats. Or that, say, like someone like Michelle Flournoy, like Mm -hmm. one of the big Democratic Party sort of defense intellectuals leading candidate to be the first woman secretary of defense, that she is also one of the most hawkish of Democrats in that kind of position. Um, I mean, it's because there's a lot of gendered assumptions around national security politics. And conversely, like if you wanted to stand out as unusually dovish on military issues, it would really help not just to be a man, but it would help a lot to be a combat veteran. Right. Or a general, yeah. Right. In like, fact, which, like, this is not a hypothetical. Like, that is happening. Right. Like, that's that's how you would want to do it. And, and you also, I think you see this among Democrats, that, like, the most vocal skeptics of, say, Trump's bombing of Syria mm-hmm. tended to be Iraq War veterans who could say, 
like I am saying that I do not think it is wise to send more Americans into wars in, in the Middle East, blah, 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 blah. Of course, there are women who are combat veterans, but it's the bulk of the armed forces are men. Uh, I think, you know, biographies being neutral, like men are can be more like tough, quote unquote. Yeah. And, and you have a pushback. The Queens is like closer to the random assignment case. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting that it's showing there that like, yeah, it's not like, okay, women just take over by accident and now we all get along. And we should clarify like what the methodology here was because it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's, this is a, I actually recommend reading the dry methodology sections of this paper. It's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. So like, I mean, economists are, are obsessed with finding sort of what are called instrumental variables or sort of things they can control for that will predict a thing that they're they're trying to uh, determine the effects of, uh, but is not sort of sort of endogenous to that in a, a troublesome way. I'm probably saying this wrong, and I apologize to my college econometrics professor. But the way they look at it is whether a king or a previous monarch had a younger sister, which is a scenario which leads to more women taking power because if he doesn't produce uh, viable heirs, his sister will will uh, take power. Um, or ones without uh, male children is another situation. And so these are like basically random outcomes. Like the gender of siblings in a family is not something that is affected by forces that would also affect the likelihood of a polity to go to war. Um, and so it's it's something that you can sort of control for and get close to random variation and and then determine the effects of that independent of anything else that might lead women as leaders to be more or less involved in wars. It's a, yeah, they code they code the different types of wars. They code the sort of relationships between the queens. It's or between the, the queens and kings and between between the siblings. Um I would really love to know just like I would have loved to have been the fly on the wall for some of this research. It's a I don't know. Sometimes the, what I love about NBR papers is like most of them are like, here's a normal question that people have. And then it's like, oh, and here's here's a paper about like 16th century queens and whether or not they went to war. Um, right. The other interesting thing I think are, are some of the alternate hypotheses that explores, which is like, did they just have really hawkish uh, men who were who they were taking advice from? And they found that, no, that was probably not the case and that they were not any more easily swayed. Uh, by their their hawkish advisors than kings were. Um, it's an interesting paper in part because of its actual findings, but also in part because of the like assumptions it's examining and and what that says that we're asking this question in the first place, or that these are the assumptions we make about this. But, but what's what's like the takeaway of this? If you were trying to, you know, a little slipshoddily extend it forward to to the modern world. So they try to do this, and it's like not particularly convincing to me. Um, Broadly speaking, we may expect to observe systemic differences in war policy based on a ruler's gender if, and then here are some like very large ifs, if male and female leaders organize their roles differently, including who they recruit into their governments and who they enlist to play supporting roles. So it's sort of like if men and women govern in like extraordinarily different ways, this may have extremely different outcomes. But I don't know. That feels like a little bit of a stretch to me. Or at least that's that's like a thing that you could attach to the end of any paper on gender and power. And I'd be like, yeah, that sounds right. Well, but I mean, so we've discussed, I, I think Sarah, Sarah Cliff uh, d- discusses with us on, on previous episodes of the show. But on domestic issues that I think are a little easier to, to code, mm-hmm. um, you know, we do find that, that women uh, legislators are more likely to – introduce bills on certain kinds of topics related to child and family policy and that that 
holds when you control for partisanship, when you control for district ideology, um, things like that. So, I mean, it does seem to suggest that men and women are governing differently on some kind of dimension. Um, it, you know, it's it's hard to test a, a foreign policy analog of that because like the sample of state legislators is really, really big and the sample of presidents is tiny and the sample of women presidents is zero, which is like why you need 500 years worth of international <laughs> right, and- data to make this work at all. But it, it, it still, it, it doesn't strike me as a crazy hypothesis. No, I don't think it is. And I think, I mean, the idea that women or their countries will be more attacked more because they are perceived as weak or perceived as less likely to fight back, I don't think is limited to like royal reigns. The problem is there's so many other factors these days that go into like who's having a war with each other that it's it's also very difficult to sort of like pull that one strand out and look at look at that. Right. And I think it's also important to put this in the context of just like war is a lot less common. Yes. In particular, interstate war, that they didn't find any effects on civil wars, but they did find effects on interstate war. Interstate war is just like becoming a thing of the past. Um, like there there are there are incidents, obviously. We bombed Syria the other day. Um, but uh but I think this is one clear finding of of Steven Pinker's research on this. Uh, decades ago, uh, John Mueller had a really good book called Remnants of War, arguing that that interstate war was something like dueling or slavery that seems inextricable from the way that the the modern world works, but that's actually just an idea that can fade away like any other. Anything sort of in a context of a of a decline in wars, all being told, sort of it's harder to to make fine distinctions between how men and women make war and, and what, what the sort of, there's just like too small of an end now. Which is a good thing. Well, let's see if North Korea can make it happen for us. On that sure, no. Get some war podcasts. <laughs> um, so with that, um, thanks to, to Libby and, and Dylan for uh, joining me. Uh, thanks to you for, for listening. Thanks to our producer, Peter Leonard, and to our sponsors. Uh, this has been a, another fabulous episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.